Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. How many of you have participated in some sort of uh, genealogical study? I'm thinking like Ancestry.com. How many of you have done Ancestry.com? Okay. Less than I expected. <laughs> what, what's that? Change it. Okay. She says change the sermon. That might be hard to do. Um, you don't know how long this one took. Um, <laughs> Any of you that have, have done Ancestry.com or some sort of genealogical study, have you found anything extremely interesting? How many of you have found something extremely interesting? Anybody, what have you found? Anybody want to share something? Just yell it out. Nigerian. You're Nigerian? Yes. Wow. Who else? Anybody? Are you, are you related to the King of England? Don't you all get adopted? Okay, okay, okay. Ancestry.com is the worst Christmas present. Wow. Wow. That's a surprise. That's a surprise. Anybody else? Keith Green is your second cousin. Wow. Are you owed any money? Is that... Anybody else? Huh? Miles Standish. You're related to Miles Standish. Who's Miles Standish? Everybody's like, you don't know? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Some, so, so some exciting things, right? Now, I, I wonder what made you all, all of you who have done this, decide you wanted to dig into your history. Like, there's all kinds of reasons, right, to dig into the history of your family, right? Uh, every time I go to the doctor, they want to know my family history. Have you guys had this one? They want to know, you know, did your great uncle die of cancer? Did your dad have high blood pressure? All the things, right? So there's a, there's a health reason maybe that you want to know your family history, right? Or maybe there's another reason. I, I, I don't know if you can tell by looking at me. Uh, I am of German descent. I know that's a surprise. It's hard to tell. Um, but what was fascinating to me to discover of being of German descent is that there were places in the south of Germany that make a lot of the way that I am make sense. If you have anybody, any of you have done that? You've gone to the place where you came from, where your family came from, and you're like, oh, that's why we do that. That's why we're that way. So there's reasons like figuring out where you're from and how that has affected you, right? There's all kinds of reasons. Maybe some of you are looking for uh, an inheritance, right? You need to discover that you actually are related to somebody rich so that you can go and, and, and ask for some money, right? There's all kinds of reasons that you might want uh, to discover stuff about what your family history is, but you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating about family history, if you've done enough of it, if you go back far enough, is you start to see trends. 
Those of you who have done family history, have you seen trends that you start to see, you know what I mean, like just in the health, like you're like, oh, my grandfather had high blood pressure, my dad had high blood pressure, I have high blood pressure. That makes sense. There's some trends. Or if you go back in your family history and you find that, uh, you know, five generations ago, my great-great-great-grandfather, I don't know how many greats, I'm running out. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather cut off from the entire family. He just cut off relationship entirely. And so what I have watched generation to generation is that we cut off from each other. Have you seen this? Some of you are like, wait, that's why my family is the way it is. Yeah, it is. You, you see there's sort of this, this event that marks your family tree in such a way that there seems to be a seedbed laid that makes conditions right for things like cutoff to happen, right? Have you, have you seen this? So there's, it doesn't mean that everyone in your family will cut off from everyone else. Every generation gets to make a choice. Every generation gets to decide whether they will continue that habit or not. But the conditions become more likely over time. Have you seen this in your own family? Conditions become likely. There's all kinds of things like that. That's just one example. And one of the ways that this is certainly true is when it comes to Christian faith. You see, if, if some of you have looked back on your family history and you'd say, well, I know my grandmother was the one who came to faith, and our family has grown up in a seedbed of Christian faith. Do you know that? Some of you can point to the person. It was my grandfather. When he came over from Europe, he, he held on to Christian faith. And my family, the generations have been born into conditions that make it likely that they become followers of Jesus. Do you know about these people? But what's interesting is that not everyone in every generation, just because you grew up in a seedbed of Christian faith, actually chooses to surrender their life to Jesus. That every generation, much like the cutoff, every generation gets to make their own decision about whether or not they will step into the pattern. That every generation gets to decide, will I or won't I follow Jesus? We make the mistake when we say this thing, I grew up in a Christian family, so I must be a Christian. Someone put it this way, God has no grandchildren, only children. Some of us have been like, well, I grew up in a Christian country. Aren't I a Christian? And the answer to that question is not necessarily. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, this man who claimed to be the king, the Jewish Messiah, who was crucified and then raised to life again. We celebrate this today. And the choice for all of us today, the question to all of us today is, what will we do with Jesus what kind of legacy will we live into? Will we be the people who grew up in the Christian seedbed and chose to continue on as followers of Jesus? I mean, maybe you're here and you're like, you know, it's generation on generation. We've all followed Jesus in my family. And so I am just the next step in that legacy. Maybe you're here and you're like, I've never been a part of a Christian family. And yet God has drawn you here for the sake of changing the narrative of your family history. Wherever you are, the offer today is what will you do with Jesus? 
I'm calling today's message a legacy of following Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you have invited us to consider the claims that you make. We're grateful that you have died and raised again to life on our behalf. And so today, Lord, as we consider your resurrection, as we consider what it means for our lives, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and that you would grant gifts of faith. Would you put power on this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. We're going to look today at Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. And here's what we read. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. As we read this passage, and as we consider what it is to have and to live into a legacy of following Jesus, one of the things that we need to begin with as of as a first importance is that all of Christian faith rises and falls on whether or not the resurrection happened. All of Christian faith, all of Christianity hangs on the resurrection. It's so important, in fact, that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says if it didn't happen, you guys are silly for believing it. C.S. Lewis said that, that Christianity is, the only thing Christianity can't be is moderately important. If it's true, it's the most important thing. And if it's false, it's of no importance whatsoever. Everything hangs on the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundational message that the apostles preached. If you go through the book of Acts over and over and over, they say, you're the ones who killed Christ, but God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the message. It's so important that whenever they're choosing to replace Judas, one of the criteria for selecting a new apostle, verse 22 of Acts 1 says, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
whatever else you think Christianity is founded on, the most base level foundation of Christian faith is the resurrection. That's the bedrock. Whatever else you think it is, the bedrock is the resurrection. And if that thread unravels, the whole thing comes apart. If Jesus was not raised, doesn't matter what he said, it's not, I mean, maybe it's helpful, right? But it doesn't save you. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection. It is the foundation of Christian faith. Now, you may be listening as someone who has struggled with faith, or maybe you have rejected faith. What's tragic to me as a pastor is how many people reject faith for something that is not foundational. So many people, I have conversations with so many, I'm in the middle of a conversation now with someone who is rejecting faith, not because they disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus, they're rejecting faith because of the way Christian people have hurt them. And if that's you, I'm so sorry that someone hurt you in the name of Jesus. That's not the, the heart of Jesus. But let's not reject faith in Jesus because of the misrepresentation of people who claim to follow him. I have conversations all the time with people who struggle with faith because they can't, they can't reconcile an all-powerful, all-loving God and yet the suffering that they see in the world. And friend, if that's you, that's a question that we do need to deal with. But it's not at the foundation of Christian faith. Christian faith is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus. I've talked to all kinds of people who struggle with faith because they can't reconcile a God who loves and this idea of hell. And that's a thing that we have to deal with. But it's not the foundation of Christian faith. The foundation is, was Jesus raised from the dead or not? And it's tragic to me, people who, who will reject faith or seem to reject faith in Jesus for something other than what is foundational. It's good news that after Jesus was crucified, he was raised from the dead. How many of you have ever shown up to a funeral with some, some sneaking suspicion that the body will get up out of the coffin? Have you ever thought about that? You go to a funeral, is anybody actually afraid of that? A couple of you? <laughs> maybe that is a, maybe two of you. A, there are hands. Um, the good news here is that Jesus has defeated death. This is the invitation. It's to believe in a Messiah who was dead and is now alive. And it's not a thing that we normally expect, which is what makes it so significant. The invitation to you today is to rethink how life works in light of the good news that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. That's the invitation today. And no matter where you stand, whether you're someone who's been a Christian your whole life, you've been following Jesus since every, the, the, the minute you can remember, and you're completely convinced that the resurrection is true, or you're someone who's like, I don't know what I think about that. Whoever you are, wherever you are on that spectrum, the invitation is to reorient your life 
around the fact that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. That's the invitation today. And some of you are like, that's a piece of cake. Done. I already know. I'm convinced. Don't you, I don't need to hear any more. Some of you are like, I can leave now. I already know how this plays out. I'm convinced that the resurrection is true. But for many of you, this is maybe a struggle. You're probably a lot like me. How many of you like me who are like skeptical? I don't want to be duped. Anybody like being duped? Nobody likes to be duped, right? You're like me. You're skeptical. You're like, I don't want to put my hope and my faith and my trust in something unless it can be proven, right? I don't want to be tricked. I don't want to find out, you know, down, just down the road. Jerry knows this about me. I don't want to make a decision and 10 minutes later find out that if I had just done just a little bit more looking, I could have figured out that this was not true, right? You're skeptic like me. And the, the thing that's, the, the question that's really at hand is, can I actually trust the resurrection, right? Isn't that the question at hand? Can I actually trust that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive? And if you're a skeptic like me, what you want to know is, is there solid evidence that this is true? Is there any solid evidence? Is there any proof? Is there anything that I can hang my hat on that I can build my house on? And now I want you to know there's a number of fantastic resources. I've already mentioned one. If you're like someone who's trying to dig deeper and trying to understand uh, the, the foundation of Christian faith, Alpha is fantastic. So I do want to just make another plug for Alpha. Join me on Thursday night. We look at these topics. We look at things like this. So I would encourage you to check out Alpha. But the other thing that I think uh, is a fantastic resource is this book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. How many of you have read The, the Case for Christ? A handful of you know of The, the Case for Christ. Um, it's a fantastic book because Lee Strobel was a, an atheist and an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. So he had no faith in God, and he was an investigative reporter digging into, like, uh, cases of crimes and all kinds of stuff. And at one point in the late 70s, his wife came home and she said, I have uh, decided to become a Christian. And this flipped his world upside down. He said, I, I thought we had agreed that this was nonsense. And she now said she was a believer in Jesus. And so he took his investigative abilities and said, I'm going to investigate all of the evidence. I'm going to dig into all the sources and try to understand all the things, not because I want to become converted to a follower of Jesus, but because I need to prove that my wife is wrong and this thing is silly. This was his whole ploy. He was like going to use all of his investigative journaling to understand so that he could prove to her that she was wrong. And after two years, what he found was that there was plenty of evidence to trust that the resurrection of Jesus had happened. And in the early 80s, Lee Strobel eventually gave his life to Christ. Now, he detailed in this book, for those of you who have not read it, he detailed all of the evidence that he came across. And what was the evidence? The first piece was that Jesus was dead on Good Friday. We have to start there, right? If Jesus has to be resurrected, Jesus has to be dead first. So can we prove that Jesus was dead? One of the most concrete facts in history is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross. It's one of the most well-known facts. 
Almost all scholars who have studied it have come to the conclusion that it's true. In fact, even scholars who don't confess Jesus as Messiah would agree that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. There's good evidence for this. If you look at the passage that we read on on Friday night, uh, Good Friday, just before this, the the end of, of chapter 23, what you find is that everybody around knew that Jesus was dead. All of them knew. Uh, The disciples knew that Jesus was dead. The women who followed Jesus from Galilee knew that Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, knew that Jesus was dead. If you look at Mark's account of the same events, what you find is that Joseph, this guy, went to Pilate to ask for the body, and Pilate was stunned that Jesus was already dead. And he wasn't going to just let him have the body. He called a centurion in and said, I want you to go verify that Jesus is actually dead. And the centurion verified that Jesus was actually dead. Now, Romans know how to kill people. This guy knew that Jesus was dead. Everyone attested that Jesus was dead. Pilate knew that Jesus was dead. But it's not just biblical sources. If you're someone that's trying to like go, hey, I really want the evidence on whether or not this is true, it's also helpful to know that people outside of the Bible would attest to this, right? Isn't that a helpful thought? That someone outside of, uh, of Christianity would, would be able to attest that, that Jesus was dead. There's a, Jew, a first century Jewish historian. Some of you will know the name, Flavius Josephus. Usually they, he just gets referred to as Josephus. And uh, he, ha- he was not a follower of Jesus. He was a Jewish historian, just cataloging the, the, the history of the Jews. Here's what he said. He said, at this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. So this guy doesn't even have a dog in the fight. And he says, yeah, Jesus was crucified. He died. Everyone who was a follower or not, friend or enemy, everyone knew that Jesus was dead on Friday. The second piece of evidence was that the tomb of Jesus was empty on Sunday morning. When the women showed up on Sunday morning, you know, they kind of rushed to get this body put away before the Sabbath. They Sabbath, and then they came on Monday morning to treat the body so that it wouldn't stink so bad. Uh, And what was missing was the body. They showed up, and what was missing was the body. And they went to tell the other disciples, and the other disciples found it empty as well. The body was missing. Even those who opposed Jesus conceded that the tomb was empty. In Matthew 28, when the guards were guarding the tomb, found that the tomb was empty, they went to to their overseers, and the the agreement that they made was, yes, the tomb is empty. You're, You're supposed to say that the disciples stole the body. So even the people who opposed Jesus knew that the tomb was empty. I mean, think about it for a minute. If the body was still in the tomb, they could have just pulled it out and said, see, it smells really bad, and here you go. That's pretty good. I like it. Thanks. I appreciate that. Makes me feel better. I mean, you can imagine that, right? Like, if we could pull the body out of the tomb, it would have stopped the whole thing right there. But the body wasn't there. Where did it go? So on Friday, everyone agreed that Jesus was dead. On Sunday, everyone agreed the body was missing and nobody knew 
where it was, there's a third piece of evidence. The third piece of evidence is that the disciples began proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Now you may say, well, what's the significance of that? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that the disciples began to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? You see, I don't know if you've read through the, the account, but as soon as Jesus is crucified, the disciples go into hiding. Have you seen that? Like they're hiding and they're just sort of hoping the whole thing is going to blow over, that we're not going to be next, right? They killed Jesus. Theoretically, we're next. we got to put down the whole revolution. So they went into hiding and they were terrified and trying to save their own lives. So this is not a picture of people who are going to stand up and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, but in a really short span of time, all of a sudden they're back out proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead. N.T. Wright, some of you will know that name, uh, is a New Testament scholar and historian, and he spent a fair amount of time studying the whole uh, period around the time of Jesus, and especially Jewish revolutionaries. Did you know that Jesus, around, that, around the 300-year window when Jesus was, that there were several people who claimed to be the Messiah? Do you know Jesus wasn't the only one to claim to be the Messiah? But what N.T. Wright says is every time another revolutionary showed up and said, I'm the Messiah, we're going to kick out the Roman occupation, and we're going to take it over. Every time that happened, what eventually happens is that the, the lead revolutionary gets killed, and it leaves the remaining followers with one of two options. Option A is the one the disciples were taking. Let's hide and hope they don't kill us too. Let's hide and we'll... Hopefully, it'll all blow over. That's option one. Option two for uh, Jewish revolutionaries was to find another Messiah, usually a brother, another relative of the one who was killed. So we don't continue the the revolution in the name of the first one. We just find another one, and we stick him in there. He's got the same last name. That'll work, right? Those were the two Jewish options. Give it up or find another Messiah. But what was not an option was to say that the original one was alive again. That would not have been a possibility for the the disciples unless they had seen that Jesus was alive. Going back to Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, he said this. He said, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. What causes a terrified group of people who are hiding to turn around and boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? What would, what would cause that to happen? The fourth piece of evidence, Jesus had been seen by eyewitnesses. Shortly after they find the tomb, empty, Mary runs into Jesus, right? Runs into Jesus and sees Jesus alive. And then a, a little bit longer, uh, a little bit later, if you read the next passage of Scripture in Luke, what you find is these two disciples run into Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And then after that, Jesus shows up in the room with the disciples. 
And he shows up in the room with the disciples again. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says this. It says, after that, he, that's Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, this is significant. Maybe you don't realize this is significant because we're like almost 2,000 years since this was written. But when Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians and he says more than 500 together at the same time, he's writing it in a time when most of those 500 are still alive. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is if you're not sure, go ask them. You can find most of them still alive. He couldn't have said that unless, in fact, Jesus had been seen alive. All of this evidence demands some sort of a verdict, doesn't it? The tomb was empty, but we knew Jesus was dead. If he was dead and then he was buried and the tomb was empty, these scared guys start proclaiming that Jesus had been raised. And now there's all these people who are saying, I've seen him alive. How do we make sense of all of that? I think the best possible explanation is that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. There just simply is no better explanation. And we could go on and on and on. If you read the book, Case for Christ, there's other things that point. But these are the foundational things. That Jesus was raised from the dead. But here's what I know. I know that following Jesus and making a choice to follow Jesus is not just stacking facts. Right? You can be handed all the right facts and all the right evidence, but ultimately a decision is made at some deeper level, is it not? The facts help, but if you're like, something about this still just doesn't feel right. It's more, of, it's more than just a fact-based decision because for so many of us, there are fears and implications. What does this mean if I choose to believe this, what does it mean for my life? Right? If I choose to believe, what does this mean for the way that my life works as I go forward? And if I could just say, if that's the fear that you have, if the fear that you have is that I don't know what this will mean, if I choose to believe this, if I choose to take you at the facts that you've presented and I choose to adopt the fact that Jesus was actually raised, what does that mean for Monday? What does that mean for Easter dinner at my family's place? What does that mean for my job and what does that mean for my relationships? That's the fear, isn't it? Like, how does this change the way I live my life? And if that's you, can I just say, you're in good company. Do you know who else was afraid and unsure of what this meant for the rest of their lives? The disciples. The people who had spent years with Jesus already. Can you imagine how this would feel? Jerry and I were talking about this yesterday as we're, we were driving around running errands. We had had Good Friday where we remember act one of the story where Jesus was crucified. And she said, can you imagine what it would feel like if you had just seen all of that? 
and you had just spent all that time with Jesus, and you thought this was the revolution, and you watched him die and be buried, can you imagine what it would feel like? I'd be like, I had given my life to this. Can you imagine that feeling? And yet, then on Sunday, it's like, wait, but he's alive now. So I just had all the emotions of watching this guy who I loved and was close to get killed. I thought we were the revolution. Now we had to abandon the revolution. And now they say he's alive. And on the one hand, I'm super excited about the fact that this guy that I love is alive. And on the other hand, I'm terrified about what that means. I don't know about you if you've ever been in a spot where you have watched someone you love die and then come back to life? Can you imagine how weird that would feel? And there's all kinds of emotions, and what's evident from from all of Scripture is that nobody knew what this would mean for their lives. Nobody knew. The disciples were looking for this powerful military ruler who was going to come and kick out the occupation. What they didn't expect was to see this man be killed and raised to life. What does this mean for my life going forward? The women who were preparing spices for the dead body, they engaged in the Sabbath as any good Jew would do, and then they went and they found that he wasn't there. What does this mean for the rest of my life? Can you capture the the shock? of the fact that this guy was dead and he's alive and what that would mean for life. The women came to the disciples to tell them what they discovered and it wasn't like the disciples were like, there it is. I was just waiting for that. We knew it was coming. They ran off because they didn't believe them. And when they found the tomb was empty, they were stunned. The passage we read says they were wondering what had happened. Can you imagine what it would feel like to stand at the, at, the, at the edge of understanding that this guy who was dead is now alive and this has implications now for my life? And it's not even until after the resurrection that the disciples begin to piece together that Jesus had been telling them this was going to happen all along. But what was true for all of them is that in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, nothing would ever be the same. Nothing would ever be the same. They may not have known how it would be different, but they knew that it was going to be different. They knew that Jesus had been raised, and there was no way to go back to being in a space where I didn't believe that to be true. And a more modern way to say it, you can't unsee that. And once you've seen it, you reorient your life around it. What happened for all of these people is that everywhere they went, they lived in light of the fact that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. And they told everyone everywhere, because this is the most unbelievable story. And what they believed was that the same power that raised Christ from the dead resided in them, and so they went everywhere praying for the sick, healing the sick, casting demons out of people. 
Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead lived in them. Listen, friend, here's the deal. In some sense, there's no way you can have any idea what the implications to your life will be for choosing to believe that Jesus was raised. There's no way you can know because what it means to surrender your life to Jesus is to say, I'm not in charge anymore, Jesus, you are. After all, you were the one who was dead and is now alive. I'm going to choose to trust you with my life. I'm going to put it in your hands and now you call the shots. And there's something about letting go of control in that act, right? And so at some level, you can't know for sure what it will look like on the other side of surrendering your life to Jesus. But what I also know is once you've become convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead, what else could you do? You can't unsee that. What else could you do but surrender to Jesus? The one who died in your place and in my place. The one who was raised from the dead and the one who defeated death so that I don't have to be afraid. He says, follow me. What else could I do? That same Jesus says, follow me. What else could you do? I was having a conversation with Evan just this past week and um, we were just talking about that and I was like, The problem for me is that I know too much. I know that Jesus was raised from the dead. So no matter what, what else could I do? Where would I go? I know something that I can't unknow now. And friend, that's the invitation, is to know something that you can't unknow. But here's the deal. While you can't stare into the the fog and know what this will mean for your life, one thing Jesus promises is that your life will be marked by the Holy Spirit. Your life will be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, how much of that would you want? How much of all of those things would you want? How much of all of those things is your life marked by now? You know, we can't know what Jesus will call us to when we choose to surrender, but you know what we can know? We can know that we are known and we are loved. We can know that we don't have to fear death We can know that that he promises us life to the fullest. We can know that he promises to work all things to our good. We can know that even though today might be dark and difficult and seem despairing, we can know that our best days are ahead of us. We can know that Jesus promises that your life and my life will have meaning and purpose. How much of that do you know about your own life now? How much do you know that you are known, that you are loved, that your life has meaning and purpose, that your best days are ahead of you?
How much do you know that now? And how much more could you know that if you choose to trust Jesus? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.